Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest is poet and author Megan Wildhood. Megan is a writer, an editor, and a writing coach who, through many outlets, helps her readers feel seen. She has published a poetry chapbook, Long Division, Finishing Line Press, 2017, and now a poetry collection, Bowed as if Laden with Snow, Cornerstone Press, this month, May 2023. Again, it's available now, and Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Ingo. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> right. I'm glad you're with me, too. Let's begin this poetic journey, okay? All right. All right. Megan, based on what you know about the world and poetry, what is poetry to you? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think poetry for me is my first language. And poetry, um, the way that I write it and the way that I like to read it is that it gives brief but clear glimpses into whatever world uh, the author is inviting the reader into. So it's uh, imagery in words, mm-hmm. and it uh, is, is more of an invitational, kind of relational um, picture that the author, uh, the writer mm-hmm. of the poem, and the mm-hmm. reader of the poem kind of create together. Tell me what it means to you from your heart. It is, I would say it's, it's, my, it's my mother tongue. Um, I never oh, learned to write poetry. I just okay, okay. kind of always did it. And mm-hmm. I didn't really, I was writing poetry before I knew that I was writing poetry. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that it's always how I think, but mm-hmm. when I want to um, create intimacy with uh, something or someone, um, that is... The, that poetry is the, the vehicle by which I do that. You know, usually I ask the following question, why is it important? And I'll ask that. But I'd like to know, you talked about poetry being the first language, your mother tongue, creating intimacy, poetry is involved. So do you live your life like it's a poem? <laughs> uh, that is something I strive to do. Um, oh, really? It's, All right. Uh, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's something I aspire to. Uh, I Mm. also have this kind of very structural, um, rigid side of me that Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. is very literal, that uh, sometimes uh, makes language brittle. um, Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that's necessary when you're trying to um, communicate, uh, you know, instructions or when you need to be extremely clear and there's only one meaning for things. Um, mm-hmm. But as I am trying to relax around that, I mm-hmm. find that um, it actually is uh, poetry that I turn to, uh, to to kind of do that. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's important for me is that it does tend to relax some of that uh, structured, 
uh, rigidity around, uh, well, language, but also just kind of how I uh, see the world. So I have these dual sides, and I'm trying to, to bridge that, and I think uh, mm-hmm. poetry can be uh, one way I do that. All right, very nice. So my question again, in terms of why it's important, you just shared in terms of why it resonates with you. So with the general populace, why, why do we do what we do as poets? What makes that important? Yeah, it's a it's such a good question, especially in a culture that uh, doesn't really seem to to value uh, poetry or really the arts in general. Although I do think that's changing. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, why we do what we do as poets, uh, given that um, now that I've I've talked to several poets, some of my press mates at Cornerstone Press, um, mm-hmm. and some of the poets in the writers group that I'm in, um, and have been in for three years, uh, we do it. Um, because the world is beautiful and we want to witness to that. We want to bear Mm -hmm. witness to, um, to all that is beautiful in the world, even as it is also heartbreaking. Wow. Let's go back to it being your first language, your mother tongue. I've never heard that before in my (laughs) five years of being on the air. Now this is the sixth year. I've never heard anyone say that. And that fascinates me. I'd like to know more. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think uh, that might surprise a lot of people who know me in real life. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, I think uh, when I first started writing, which was probably first grade, um, even kindergarten, I remember my first grade teacher, uh, she was circling words in some of my uh, little writing assignments and mm-hmm. was just saying, uh, like, wow, this really stands out. Wow, this is really poetic. What an interesting word choice. And mm-hmm. I just was like, this is just what's coming naturally to me. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I never learned uh, how to uh, write poetically. It was just, that's what showed up. Um, and I can feel the difference because I had to teach myself how to write fiction and how to mm-hmm. write um, nonfiction so prose, and I, I think um, the feedback I've gotten uh, from the book, uh, people who have read the book, have, who have known me in a capacity where I'm writing prose, I do that for, um, I, I do, that's part of my, my job. They yes. say, wow, it is so, it's like reading the real you when I'm reading mm. your poems. It's mm. like just this window opens up. Whereas with prose, it's uh, and people who know me will probably who've read my writing will attest to this. Um, it is how I think, but it's a little bit harder to follow, and it has to be kind of manicured and massaged and edited a lot more. Whereas yes. poetry, not that I don't edit my poetry, but it yes. comes. Sometimes I feel poems just crawl down my arm, and that is uh, something I've experienced my entire life. I've never learned how to write poetry. It's just kind of something that's been there. Well, does it crawl down your arm or crawl up your arm inside of you? Inside of you? <laughs> I mean, I'm just asking. Oh, that oh, no. is awesome. Yes. It's probably both. <laughs> I didn't because think about that. If it crawls down your arm, yeah. it's crawling off of you, but it crawls up your arm, then it's crawling into your into your body and your system. <laughs> yes. That that is also true. When I read other people's poems and it kind of, they yeah, that is very true. <laughs> you know, you've already answered some of my questions because my next question would have been, and it's gonna be, please share with me an early experience where you'd learned that poetic language had power. Yes. Uh I think when I 
I it was it's going back to the uh, writing assignments in first grade. Yes. I didn't. I wasn't trying to find pretty words. I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I was really just searching out. You know, the, well, there's a perfect word that goes here, and and to 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 make the story work, I have to find that word. Mm-hmm. And those would often be the words that my teacher would circle, and say, wow, this really jumps out. Uh, I, I, this is very vivid. This is really showing me a picture. I'm really seeing what you're writing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, words mm-hmm. can create pictures. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. So, and that just, that was, it never occurred to me until then that I can make pictures in other people's minds with words. Wow. Wow. Wow, I like the way you think. Where you <laughs> You've already got me wrapped up. I'm enjoying myself already. We've only been there nine minutes. All right. What are some what are some of the predominant themes that you write about? I think one of the main things that I write about that I it wasn't really a choice, it just kinda kept showing up mm-hmm. is um love and by extension grief. Okay. And because I don't think that I have had an experience of love that is void of grief. And that's kind of how I know uh, Mm -hmm. that I love something or someone is that there's either anticipatory grief or there's like real and present grief. Mm -hmm. And I write what I write. I think I'm writing about a tree or about my cat or um, this, you know, beautiful sunset that I saw. But it mm-hmm. always turns into this experience of love. And I think the reason love and grief are connected is because uh, everything is temporary in the world. And yet there is something in each of us that knows that that isn't how it was made to be. Wow. We'll talk more about that as we continue this journey. But I'd like to know all great writers – have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Make it. Mm, yes. So, uh, one of the, one of the great writers that I uh, continue to draw inspiration from, even um, about fifty years after his death, is C.S. Lewis. Uh, mm-hmm. He was not a poet, but mm-hmm. he his writing uh, he wrote fiction and, and nonfiction, and uh, his all of his writings are uh, just like latent. There's metaphor just latent within every, uh, in my opinion, every sentence. Um, whether he's telling a, uh, you know, a sci-fi trilogy story, whether he's um, talking to uh, England in World War II um, about how how the Christian faith applies in, in that uh, setting, and then that was turned into a book uh, called Mere Christianity. Uh, which is one of the only books that I've read multiple times. Um, mm-hmm. And just the, the, it's more the depth that he takes readers to with even the simplest of constructions, the simplest of words, but they're so well chosen, so sharp, and so exactly the right word at that particular time. Mm-hmm. And I, I want, I mean, I feel like I, you know, came into the world that way. And then I, I want to be even more, like that. Uh, he seems to really respect what words mean. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that I 
when I was a child, I read the dictionary and I thought it was a book about everything. <laughs> and um, see, it seems like C.S. Lewis may have also read the dictionary because all right, all uh, right. he he seems to know exactly the word in every situation. So he's one of my, uh, someone who continues to, to speak to me from beyond the grave, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the other, uh, another inspiration uh, that I have is actually the, the Psalms, the Psalter in uh, the Bible. Um, okay. It's some of the most beautiful poetry and some of the most raw poetry that I have read. Uh, mm -hmm. And I love that it's that it's Holy Scripture as well, because it shows the kind of relationship that um, that the, the God of the Christian Bible wants to have with his people. And I just have not found a better model for the kind of intimacy that that poetry can invite two people into mm -hmm. and. Um, so I, not that I don't aspire to write Holy Scripture, obviously, but it's just that that level of intimacy with the reader, and yes. with, uh, between the reader and the the speaker and the writer is something that um, just strikes me every time I read a All psalm right. um, out of out of Scripture. Please share a poem. Sure. So uh, speaking of love, uh, this is from yeah, my my. Now available collection, Boat of the Flading with Snow. It's called Love in the Injustice Age. Love in the Injustice Age is when you know someone so well you could be her scream. Tia and I, we have caught a glimpse of our extinction. We are hunting it down. We build peace with justice, Tia and I. She cracks jokes like belts, and I dig like an insult and the scant trees seize in the wind. We make this ditch with pickaxes and fear and sick hope and just us. We are trying to prevent wasteland, a place where no mystery can live, at least somewhere. And so we have to dig. Past dirt, through the fat bones of old trees, below water tables screaming with life barrier but we must find what everyone will believe is worth saving tia shares personal opinions about love and cancer i press her to keep digging with me we must find something gold for humanity and we must find it here we do stop for snacks for sleep to watch darkened light plunder the growing thunderheads Birds fly off in the tsunami sea that is hooked like a rubber band around God's thumb. Do you hear that sound? Tia asks, leaning her shovel into juicy soil. Nothing from the birds, but the moon, small but good shepherd, yelps against our never-dulled blades. Frogs, the ones we haven't dissected in our hurry, waddle crawl across sticky leaves we've tossed aside. Blades buzz in the sepia breeze. Tia gets to the ground, wrists, elbows, triceps, ear. Here, she handprints the pulped dirt. Here, I see the scream, blue holes in my vision, before I feel it gash my throat. Tia buries her face in the slit shoulder of earth. It is painful to believe that every rock is sacred because nothing survives love. Thank you. Wow. 
Wow. What was the, what is the purpose of that particular poem? Yes. What do you so think it mm-hmm. Yes. The thing I think uh, that I, I actually constructed this poem around the last line, which is just three words, nothing survives mm-hmm. love. Okay. And what I'm hoping uh, to convey in, um, in more of an image form is the idea that uh, th- there are these two people, the speaker and Tia, that are trying to uh, find some, they're trying to find beauty. It's like maybe a post-apocalyptic world. And they're trying to find something that will inspire people mm-hmm. to, to, to save the world because what uh, happens with love, I think, in my experience and in my understanding of it is that if done well, Love actually purifies, consumes, even in some ways destroys what was there before to make mm-hmm. it into this, the, the, the image of what it should be. And mm-hmm. um, so that's nothing survives. That's what that means. Nothing survives love. Um, and so it's, it's more of a, like a hope, too, that, that we could be people who love that fiercely in terms of poetic devices which devices do you employ most often oh that's a great question i think um i don't usually use form although i will say that one form that has um very much uh caught my attention and that i'm a little bit obsessed with appropriately would be the pantoum um it's a it's a poem for the uh, the anxious, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, right. the the one that kind of helps uh, untangle the welter of ruminating thoughts that people who uh, experience anxiety often have, and that mm-hmm. uh, that's a very repetitive type of form that um, I found helps kind of get some of that untangled. So I think uh, the pantoum. I also think repetition. And then I think, uh, so repetition just in terms of words and, and images. Um, another thing that I didn't really consciously realize I was doing, uh, but then have mm-hmm. employed uh, since then, is like the double or triple uh, meanings of uh, words and phrases. Um, mm. That like even the title of, of, my, of this entire collection, Boat is Laden with Snow, that's a mm-hmm. line from one of the poems. And rather than the title of, of a poem itself. And I dedicated this book to my uh, late grandparents, All right. whose last name was Snow. Mm. But I actually didn't do that on purpose. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like that kind of stuff shows up in my, in my writing a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, it's not really intentional. Okay. You know, you published the Poetry Chapbook, Lone Division, and now this collection bowed as if laden with snow. I want to focus on that mm-hmm. for a period of time. What inspired it? Was it your grandparents? So they inspired uh, a number of poems in this collection, and it was actually bef- – I didn't realize I was writing a collection. These poems were written some at, as long ago as t- uh, 2008. Um, mm-hmm. When, the, when my grandfather uh, uh, died in 2008. And so I was writing these poems, and I did not realize that it was a collection until mm. I noticed, oh, I keep t- returning to the theme of 
gardening. My grandfather was a gardener. Um, mm-hmm. I keep returning to the theme of like the environment and uh, how humans are interacting with the earth and, or I am wanting to write about a specific environmental incident like the forest fires that really impacted Seattle in, in 2017 with all the smoke mm-hmm. that I had not seen in Seattle but grew up with in my childhood in mm-hmm. Colorado. And so I was like, oh, the, there are a lot of themes here, the environment, my grandparents, and I feel like there was a lot of connection between those two because a lot of memories I have from um, I, I grew up seeing my grandparents every week, sometimes more, and a lot of those were outside. We were playing in their huge backyard. We were walking to, we called it Nana's Pool, which was the pool in her neighborhood. We were uh, doing something outside, even when it was like maybe about to snow or when it was there were thunderclouds forming. Colorado has uh, somewhat uh, erratic weather. And so I just was like, oh, there, there's a connection here. And by the mm-hmm. time I realized that, I had written almost all these poems. So oh, wow. it was, again, sort of a, an unconscious um, mm-hmm. inspiration uh, for these poems. And so there were just a few that I wrote to kind of fill in the, uh, the collection as, as a collection once I realized that's what I've been doing for the last 13 years. Mm, okay. I'd like to know more about the title. It's very interesting. Bowed as if laden with snow. I mean, such a beautiful line. Tell me more about this title. What does it mean? What does it mean? That's what I really want to know. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. This this line came usually when a collection uh, is put together, the the title of the collection is the title of one of the poems, but that's in the collection. But I didn't feel like any of the titles of any of my poems in this collection actually fit. And so I was trying Mm. a few and um, it just, none of them really seemed to, to work. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. I could, you know, settle for one or two and do it because it really sets the tone of the collection. And so mm-hmm. as I was revising uh, the poem that's called, I wish human destruction was like mm-hmm. the line, both of the with snow jumped out. And I, that line was not originally in the first draft of this poem. Mm-hmm. And I, as I was um, revising this poem, it jumped out, and I was—I thought, "Oh, this is the title. This is the title of the collection." Mm. And it's just—it's actually just a clause in one of the lines of this, this poem. Um, and I am. What's kind of ironic about this title is I actually don't really like snow that much. Um, okay. I. I don't like shoveling it. I don't like being cold. Uh, you'd think being from Colorado, I would have gotten used to that, but I, I really yes. just uh, not so much. I love I love heat, and I, I like uh, dry uh, heat, but I don't I don't particularly like snow. But my grandparents' mm-hmm. last name is Snow, so technically I'm a snowflake. So there's mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this line jumped out. It's the title. It's this is the title. And I had to kind of go, okay, why does this work as the title? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think this is sort of retroactive thinking like, okay, this is why this makes sense. Initially it was just a feeling that this is the title, but what, what I think at least what it means to me is that um, so snow has, has great weight especially in Colorado, it snaps tree branches and then that knocks the power out. And then that's when we have snow days. And so I was always more focused on as a child on, 
on the weight of snow rather than on its beauty or on um, like what you can do in it. Like, can you build a snowman? Can you go skiing? And I was more like, how bowed is that branch? Is it going to break? And is it going to knock the power out? Kind of, you know, fingers crossed because I wanted a snow day, mm-hmm. but also a little bit like, oh, what are we going to do without power? Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was thinking, okay, this jumped out at me probably because there, that's kind of how I pay attention to a lot of things in life is okay. what is their, what is their weight? What is the, the, and what is causing their weight? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily snow that's uh, weighing everything down. And being weighed down is not necessarily was a bad thing either. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sometimes, like I remember some Christmases where it would snow and the, the, the boughs it would make in the huge, uh, we, have a, we had a blue spruce tree in our yard when I was growing up, were beautiful. That, I did think that was beautiful, um, mostly because mm-hmm. I didn't have to shovel it, but because um, mm-hmm. it was on the trees. But I think it's just that's why it leapt out at me was, oh, that, that's explaining me to myself. Like I do look for weightiness mm. and what is causing the weightiness All right. in, in life. Now, would you be willing to share the form that contains the lie? Yes, <laughs> right. I Thank would. <laughs> okay. This is the poem. I wish human destruction was like, I wish human destruction was like, the exuberantly rotting nurse logs all along the trail of the last hike I took my antsy rescue dogs on before the season closed. I left my little girls with their fevers at their fathers. I packed for what I knew. I skirt a face-down river, flail as the marionettist of my pack, dread that I wasn't born a hundred years ago, farther from the end of the world. I listen for the names of things, the cold sizzles, branches bowed as if laden with snow, weaken with their own growing weight. How do I teach my girls about snow? Which dark isn't scary? What to do with wishes and love? That the real fairy tale is when no one needs saving. I excel at walks on the beach. We are in a woods. We are in a woods because humans aren't working. Human relationships aren't working. I needed to be loved by someone who has failed. That's not yet birds, scales, soil. I hit dirt with my knees. My dogs look crazy at me. Cups of earth in my hands, dirt on my dog's tongues. I hold their faces, kiss them. Sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not like me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You talked about love and grief. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say the yin and yang of love and grief. And I'm wondering, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, 
I think that I would say for the most part, most times that it does, but it's the kind of hurt that indicates healing, which is actually not always true about when I write prose, but with, with poetry, I feel like it's, okay, we're maybe exposing a wound here. We're maybe digging in some stuff that uh, is kind of raw, hasn't really been processed. And so kind of like when you're washing a wound with salt water, it Mm -hmm. um, does not feel good. And uh, there's pain, stinging. um, You just kind of want it to be over, but that's a process that you have to go through if you want it to be healed without infection. And so I I actually hadn't thought about it that way until uh, you asked that question. I think that that actually is a lot of times what what I'm doing when I'm writing a poem as opposed to writing like a story or an article. Okay. Okay. Please share another poem. Okay. So I am going to share... uh, I uh, Since I mentioned this one, uh, I'll share this one. This uh, is one that I wrote uh, in actually into, well, early 2009, mm-hmm. uh, dedicated to my grandfather after he died in December of 2008. But I am still connected to you. The water I walk over commuting from my day job cradles the moon, the face of a man whose aging will never stop. Slender rain pinpricks his foamy cheeks and rounded jowls, shatters as I walk through it into infinitesimal pools on the shabby sidewalk all the way to home. It's swishing and tangling in branches of the drama queen weeping willow. I too want to cry and never stop. I asked my dad to plant next to the greedy lilac I imported to my own garden from Pops. Is there a better way to honor passing 83 years on knees beside pews, among bees and peat and painted petunias, all to lay fallow and eventually be remembered by no one in a listing world that never stops? I could have paused in my white of orbit tended the lilac with him while it was still his, taken my here and there to his here and now. I only have these holes, a waft of budding, a dent of rainfall. Thank you. Hmm. You know, Megan, it's not only the way you craft words, it's also the way that you speak. Hmm. Now, is it an audio version of this book available or is it coming down the pipeline or something? People have actually asked that question. Um, and I have, uh, I would definitely be willing to do that. I um, am going to ask the press uh, if mm-hmm. that's a thing that, that either they would, would want to do or something that I, I could potentially do. Um, but yes, that is, that's actually come up enough times that I am like, okay, this is probably something that, uh, that needs so. to be done. <laughs> You know, on this program, I listen to a lot of people, and I really Mm -hmm. like the way the words flow from you. And what I want Mm. to know is, what is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? 
Oh, yes. Um, so when I've done workshops with uh, people uh, interested in, in learning how to write, one thing mm-hmm. I always say is that most people should not write like they talk. Mm, um, tell me. Wow. I like that. Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> there are definitely know. exceptions to that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think David Foster Wallace is actually an exception to that. But um, okay. because he did write, he wrote like he talked. And it was, to me, I found it incredibly fascinating, as controversial as a figure as he was um, or still is. But most people shouldn't write like they talk, and the, the reason is because nobody speaks grammatically correctly, and that's hard to read, but it's not hard to hear. Okay. Um, and it also, uh, people, well, like I just did, will change their thought mid-sentence. They'll do a lot of fillers. Uh, their thoughts are not really super organized. So mm-hmm. when you're reading a piece of prose, that is not usually how somebody talks. It, it's been edited. It's been probably read by multiple people. It's been uh, changed so that it's, it's easier to read. The relationship between, I would say I have, there's multiple relationships. The, re, the, the relationship between my prose mm-hmm. and my written voice is probably too close. <laughs> I okay, probably okay. need to do a little more editing. Um, and I actually have uh, some, some friends who are helping me with that because I think in uh, – paragraph long sentences that all have footnotes and that's difficult that is difficult to read Mm -hmm. but my uh speaking voice and my poetic voice i think when i'm in the when i'm you know facing towards that ideal that i mentioned earlier about living my life as as a poem um, i think is they're they're close in a good way um Mm -hmm. But I also do, I found, as I've done more readings, I did a reading workshop. Uh, I used to read way too fast, and okay. uh, people could not catch the images. They couldn't uh, process the poems, and they told me to slow down. And the reason they said that is because they actually wanted to hear the poem, and they wanted yes. to see the poem. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. I just wanted to get it over with because I was shy <laughs> and scared. Okay. So I have Uh, I took this workshop about, you know, how to read your poems. Mm. And I do think I'm a little more conversational than, than others, but I do, there is an effort uh, that I try to get inside the poem rather than Mm -hmm. inside like my head, which has been, you know, at work all day or uh, in the garden or something that's, um, you know, in a totally different vein than, than poetry, although gardening and poetry are not actually that different, but um, so I am doing a what is the mood of this poem today kind of exercise when I'm reading. I, I've read that poem before, and I actually read it very differently. So okay. the relationship, I would say, is based on what being to bring out of the poem in that okay. particular moment. Okay. All right. So with that piece tonight, reading of it, what were you hoping to bring out of it that the listeners, and including me, would hear? Yeah, so in the poem about my grandfather and his garden, um, mm-hmm. tonight I was really feeling the, 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 um, the sadness of the eventually to be remembered by no one in a listing mm-hmm. world that never stops. Yes. Um, when I wrote that, I, in 2008 I was 22, so, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's the age I was when he died. So I kind of thought, well, oh, yeah, we, we'll always remember him. But mm-hmm. 
even though that's true for us, always is a very short time for for a human being. Because human, I mean, life is the longest thing we know, but it's actually pretty short. 83 years is, is really nothing yes. in the cosmic yes. time scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really like that. As I'm getting older, I'm really understanding this whole thing that grown up said around me as, as a kid, like, wow, time is really flying. How is it already Christmas mm-hmm. again? How is it already mm-hmm. Easter again? That mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so that is something I've been trying to really process and, uh, and, and metabolize, uh, as I'm like, oh yeah, that I really am feeling that now in a way that I was not uh, as, right. as a kid, even all the way through my 20s. Understandable. You know, I was also very intrigued by the cover of your book. Tell me more about its creation. Oh, okay. So this, um, yes, this was uh, designed um, by the press. What was interesting is because I'm not, I'm not very artistic uh, visually. But mm-hmm. uh, and that's okay. Um, for that's okay with me. But the thing that I loved about this cover is when this was presented to me, I had not told the press uh, that aspens are my favorite tree, and mm-hmm. that they remind me. So that's something I don't know that people who are not from Colorado really know about Colorado. Is like the mountains are like covered in aspen trees. And so even more than snow or sun, Colorado is the sunniest state in the country, um, or like very dry, uh, dry weather, whether it's hot or cold, uh, being elevated, more than all of that, the thing that really strikes me as very Colorado is Mm -hmm. the aspen trees. And and I just hadn't hadn't told anybody that. Um, It's just something I remember uh, from my childhood, like in the fall, the aspen turn ye- yellow, then orange, then red, and it looks like sun and then fire. Um, and it's just this brilliant, it's, <laughs> I've never experienced anything like that uh, any other mm-hmm. place I've, I've been. Mm-hmm. But it was just, a, it was such a wonderful, I, I mean, I don't know that I believe in coincidences quite like this, but um, that this, because I don't like snow, so I didn't really want there to be a lot of snow. But there's this suggestion mm-hmm. of snow, which I love. and Because yes. that's actually, the title is Bode As If, Laden with Snow. But mm-hmm. the aspen trees are really my favorite part because they remind me so much of my childhood. And there's a lot of my childhood. Not all of the poems are that say I are actually me. It's the speaker. Um, but there's a lot of poems in here that are from my childhood. And so when the aspens came up, I thought, wow, this is, this is the the symbol. If I had to pick a symbol of my childhood, it would probably be, at least the outdoorsy part of it would probably be aspen trees. Okay, so it's not bowed, bold, right? Uh, pe- people have said it either way. <laughs> yeah, <Okay. laughs> yeah. I was like, she's been really nice. She never corrected me <laughs> because I was. Like, That's okay. <laughs> well, what does bold mean? I, but if it's bowed, I know what that means. But bold, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yes, I'm from the that's deep kind south, of one of the. So. <laughs> yes, that goes back to the device question that that you asked earlier. Yes, where mm-hmm. I I use words and it wasn't always intentional. I I, I am more aware of it now. Where it's uh it's a double either a double meaning or like okay. bowed bowed Both. those kind of words right. where it's actually both it could be both it could be either mm-hmm. and okay. i i try to do that because i think that um 
while I very much respect that words have their particular meaning and, uh, you know, one word cannot mean everything. It does have a circumspect uh, meaning to it. Otherwise Mm -hmm. you'd use a different word, but it, there are ways, English is a great language for this. It's so flexible and you can Mm -hmm. say so much with one word, with a few words. And so I try to play with, in my poetry, how few words can I use? Mm-hmm. to make the point that I want to make. Okay. And okay. so that's kind of where, um, where, so bowed is, is that's the one that, that makes the most sense. Cause it's the one, you know, where it's like the weightiness of everything yes. uh, that, yes. that I was, that I focus on. And then mm-hmm. um, bowed for me, this is, this is the sort of like Emily Dickinson's slant kind of meaning where it's, I think that, so I, I don't particularly think snow beautiful because I, mm. when I think of snow, I think of it snowed and then, the, you know, it's on the roads and the cars are driven by. So it's like turning gray and black mm-hmm. and it's just kind of really, I don't know, sort of gross looking or slush. is right. not that, that right. fun. But mm-hmm. I have had images. I've had experiences where I felt like I was in a Christmas card. Like one time I was in Ohio mm. for Christmas and okay. It just snowed and there were cardinals everywhere and first time I'd seen a cardinal in the wild. And I was like, okay, I can see how snow is beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would only want enough of it like a bow on a present. Oh, I see. And so it's like there's this touch of, and this is how, I mean, people can love snow. That's totally fine. But I think everybody has their thing where like, most people like this thing and you don't really like it, but you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I guess I can find to see how this might be all right, but only in small doses. Okay. And so for that, that Christmas, it was the, it just snowed that one day when I was in Ohio and it was like, this was a nice little bow on that Christmas day. Okay. You know, I started to wonder, Megan, whether you were metaphorically allergic to snow. <laughs> You've not very said very many nice things about it. So Which is ironic, yes. <laughs> what re- what redeems it for me is that it is my it's my grandparents' last name okay. and they're the ones right. um my my dad's parents died when I was young unfortunately, so I yes. never really knew them. But mm-hmm. I knew my mom's parents. Um, until I was an adult, and and my okay. last uh, her, my last grandparent died in 2019. So really, I've okay. I've had them most of my life, and so yes. there's this processing of like being grandparentless, which is mm-hmm. like I didn't sign up for that. I'm not a fan at all. And right. um, but mm. uh, but I I they were my mom's parents were so constant in my life that it's like mm-hmm. well okay. Their, their last name is Snow, and I actually am one of seven snowflakes. So mm-hmm. that there's that. At least there's, okay. and it's a little it's a little ironic that I really don't like snow, and yet my <laughs> beloved grandparents' last name is Snow. It's right, that's true. something I feel like God is winking at me about. Like, oh, really, right. really? Well, you can't escape it. It's literally in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, please share a poem. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm going to share, let's see, I'm trying to share ones that I have not typically shared, but I just, um, there's just this one that I, I don't know, I don't want to pick favorites because it's like picking favorites among your children, but I do love this one. This one is called The Eighth Plague. 
The book of Exodus in the Old Testament has it this way. God inflicted ten calamities on the nation of Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to release God's people from slavery, even though God was preventing Pharaoh from freeing God's people. This sounds like human logic. And the plagues aren't in any sort of discernible order either. They don't strike alphabetically or by subject matter or by height or in order of least bad to worst. Death of the firstborn does seem like the worst to me. I'd have been a goner. But boils, the sixth plague, seem worse than turning water into blood, which God does first. That's just creepy. And the one with the locusts. Did God send a billion bugs from heaven? Or is swarming the kind of thing locusts do? Locusts are usually solitary unless there's a drought followed by rapid vegetation growth. The serotonin release this triggers causes these introverts to get gregarious, breed like mad, and hoard. Sure, this can instigate economic and agricultural damage, but it's been happening for thousands of years wherever locusts live. I sympathize with scripture writers, though. When I'm facing fat powers far beyond my puny control that are making me miserable, the first thing I do, usually, is hurl a plague of screams at every place I think God is, and especially in every place I think God is not. Thank you. Wow. I need a second. <laughs> I get that a lot. I'm <laughs> sure you do. So, Megan, during the selection process, how did you decide which poems to choose to include in the book? Mm. Yes. So, I uh, it was at first it was kind of a flail where it was like, nope. oh, I've been writing poems for 13 years. I have a couple hundred, and mm -hmm. no, I've never seen a poetry collection that long. So, I probably couldn't get away with that. Um, so I started by just picking ones that, that I actually liked because that, that used to be kind of difficult for me. It used to be difficult for me to, to like my writing. I really had to work through a lot of perfectionism and comparison and imposter syndrome and inferiority complex and all of that. And so I thought, oh, that'll narrow it down to, you know, the number that I need and uh, narrowed it down too much. So um, I then thought, okay, if I'm actually intentionally making a collection out of poems I didn't write with a collection in mind, mm -hmm. I have to kind of pick a theme. Okay. Um, I, I didn't know that people set out to write collections from the beginning. <laughs> so mm -hmm. okay. uh that was, this is me just, I learn, I have to learn everything the hard way, I guess. But I thought, okay, of the poems I like that I wrote, what are the themes that come out? And they were uh, nature, love, grief, which are all connected with my, with my grandparents. Um, yes. And so I thought, okay, it's, it's really the overarching theme is really actually time. And my pretty significant issues that I have with, with time. Like I sort of disagree with, with how this whole time thing should go. And so that ended up being the, uh, the fence as it were for like, okay, you can, if you relate in some way to time, you can come in the gate. And if not, then we're going to save you for the next collection. All right. Hmm. 
Please share with me the titles of five poems in the book. Okay. Any random any poems? Any random ones. Okay, so yes. this one is um this is what the storm's all about. Mhm. Crisis projects. Ton as an eschaton. We are not world enders. Mm-hmm. And Glyptodon, which is written in Greek. Wow. So, Megan, when titling a poem, what should be considered? So, this is interesting. This is a very interesting question. One of the uh, very consistent pieces of feedback that I've gotten from my uh, writers group and from other people who have, uh, you know, been like friends along the way who have uh, been in, uh, you know, critique relationships with my poems, they've all said something like, this title doesn't immediately relate to the poem for me. Mm -hmm. So I have to think about how these are connected. Mm -hmm. And, there was there would be a lot of times where I would kind of do that on purpose because mm-hmm. I wanted to stretch people's thinking about a certain subject. All right. And so I think what I consider in in titling a poem is what's the what's first of all what's the mood that I want to set, and second, how much do I want to stretch the thinking about the subject that I'm going to write about um, for the reader. Okay. Okay. Mm. So what comes first, the poem or the title? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I would say, and this is sort of an ironic answer, in my first draft, mm-hmm. the poem. Okay. In my okay. revisions, the title. We're going to take a very short break. But I've got a question for you that I'd like you to answer after the break. Sure. The question is, how does the poem know where to go? Who leads oh. you or the poem? And we'll be right back. Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Megan Wildhood. Megan, how does a poem know where to go? Who leads you or the poem? Oh, this is such a lovely question. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Um, <laughs> I actually 
this is going to sound very woo-woo in a way that um, I, I'm not usually, and most right. people who know me in real life are, are going to be like, what, what, where did this come from? Um, I ask the poem uh, if, I should, if it needs help or if it just wants me to follow. And um, I usually get an answer. An answer that and you like? And if I like? don't, <laughs> yes. Well, I used to, uh, because I had issues with control, uh, which is one of the mm-hmm. symptoms of oldest child syndrome. Um, yes. I, uh, if I got the answer, well, if the poem said to me, okay, I'd like to lead, then I'd be mm-hmm. like, mm, but what if you're wrong? And <laughs> the poem would say, well, you know, how are you, how are you going to know if you're following the right way? <laughs> so, so there's that. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I had a little uh, therapy session with the poem a couple times. Yes. But um, yes. I, uh, I think that that has been sort of a measure of how much control I've been able to let go of mm-hmm. uh, over the years. So there actually has been sort of a – I don't write uh, for therapy. Um, I think it can be used that way. That's not typically how I do it. But this relationship with who decides where the poem goes, me or the poem, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. – and it's it's really been a measure of uh, how how well I'm doing at releasing the well I should say the illusion of control because we don't actually have a lot of control anyway as teensy humans but um, that has been really helpful uh, and so I would say that that if I like the answer that me liking the answer depends on how well the poem turns out but okay. I also don't really feel like I get to decide that either. All right, all right, all right. Mm. Please share another piece. Okay. So this one is, this is actually one of the first poems I wrote in this collection. So it was before I knew uh, anything about collections at all or how to do it. And it uh, changed form a lot. This is called This Glass Ledger. Progress of Petal blushed like a clapping hand, plates a sun gleam. How does the world hold you? Unrequited lash from calloused palm closed around a belt, stones puncturing stream, catching footfalls, sure and not. A careening car spun out in a slosh, Shaky hands ring the scene. Ceaseless sunstrike, fragile, frosts the night time between once friends. Chest tights, dusk tips its hat, pigeon spoken between light and dark, full breaths. Thank you. Wow. You know, accessibility is something that a lot of people talk about. And -hmm. so what I'd like to know is, how much mental energy should one use or to solve a poem? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it sort of depends, and I'm not trying to duck. I do think it depends on (laughs) what... I think it depends on what the reader wants to get out of reading okay. poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, when I read poetry, 
I want to, I would like to be invited into something that has some sort of structure or some path or some kind of guideposts. Mm -hmm. But I would also like to kind of find my own way. So I would like a poem maybe to be a cairn on a um, hiking trail and the words to sort of be little flares here and there, guiding me towards what, what this, what the author thinks is interesting, Mm -hmm. but also allows me to kind of explore and decide for myself if I think it's interesting. Now that sometimes takes a lot of mental energy for me, but sometimes Mm -hmm. the the way the poem is written, it's just sort of like, Oh, this is sort of like I'm on a lazy river and um, the poem is really carrying me along, but it's not telling me what's in the sky. So that's neat. And then sometimes it's like, okay, this is 2000 feet of elevation and three fourths of a mile. Uh, Mm -hmm. Put your helmets on, let's go. And Mm -hmm. I prefer there are certain times where I prefer one over the other. I think um, I've really benefited from both. I don't, I do read, sometimes I read prose uh, yes. to escape reality. I don't ever mm-hmm. read poetry to escape reality. And I don't write wow. poetry to escape reality. Wow. You know, poetry has a reputation for being less accessible than prose. Do you agree with that? How do you combat this perception? Oh, that's, yes. Um, I, yeah, I've heard this perception where people often feel locked out of poems. They feel like they're not accessible. They are like, well, I feel like if you just if you wanted to be understood, why wouldn't you just write a paragraph or why wouldn't you just mm-hmm. write a you know direct article? And I think um, that's because of how we are how high school English teaches poetry. I think that mm-hmm. if I didn't already love poetry and already love writing, then I probably would be totally turned off because mm-hmm. um, you know the way that we teach the way that I mean, I was in AP English when I was in high school, but uh, so I had an amazing teacher um, and an amazing group of, of students. We created anthologies together, but um, people who I've, I've heard, uh, ha- they struggled in English class because uh, they had to do thematic analyses, thematic essays of novels and poems. And I'm like, uh, I've also written novels and ain't no novelist I know writes a, writes a novel in a thematic way. That's not how that happens at all. It's about right. the character. It's about the person. It's about the story. And I think for poetry, the core, the seed of a poem is the image. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm not a visual thinker at all. And so all right. saying that to me, from me is like, I'm not a visual thinker, yet my first language is poetry. So I create, I, I'm obviously a visual thinker in terms of words. Um mm-hmm. And I do, the way I combat that perception that uh, poetry is less accessible, because I, I think it can be accurate. Like if, if you had to read E.E. E. Cummings in high school, first of all, I'm sorry. Second, right. that's not, like, read Robert Frost also. And okay. read, like, you know, like Billy Collins or, um, uh, you know, Maggie Nelson and, and these kinds of people who they want you to understand. They might want you to work for it a little because mm-hmm. we value what we work for, but mm-hmm. the work is rewarding rather than frustrating. And so the way I combat the language that, no, you can't understand poetry, I'm just not a, I'm not a poet person, is I write poems that people can see. I try to do that because I've heard, I didn't know people thought in pictures, but like yes. most of my friends think in pictures. And mm-hmm. so when I... When I, tr- I try to write poems that people can see or visualize based on the words they're reading, I don't mm-hmm. think I'm always successful at that. But that's mm-hmm. my 
that's because I, I think the seed of the poem is an image. And so I want people to be able to, if they can see the words, then the words don't get in the way of understanding anymore. Yes. You stated, and I'm probably paraphrasing now, that you do not use poetry to escape reality. Did mm-hmm. you say that? I did. Re- All right. <laughs> reality. People based on their different lived experiences is just different. You know, in this world, Megan, you know this, that there's the good, mm-hmm. the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What I'd like to know from you is what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? Mm. Yes, I think the role uh, that, that a poet should have that, that I that I think I, I strive to take on is mm-hmm. showing people where the beauty is and what, why the world is worth saving the wow. way it is. Wow. The way it is. Wow. The way it is is worth saving. Yeah. Why do you? Yeah, we've got a. What do you think that? We've got a lot of mess here. Uh, obviously, yes. there's there's mm-hmm. catastrophe after catastrophe. Yes, history is just way. one darn thing after another, as someone mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, there. I don't mean to say that like we shouldn't make changes, but mm-hmm. the way we should make changes should honor what what we have, because what we have is also. It's, it's very beautiful. Humans, as, as messed up as all of us are, are just stunning creatures. There's, there's no replica of any one of us. And I, like, I, that takes me to my knees sometimes thinking about this, mm-hmm. that all right. there's, no, there's no repetition in humanity. And, mm. like, not even close. And I, I don't know, I mean... I, I couldn't do that. When I try to create characters for my novels, I'm like, well, this one's actually really so similar to this other one that no one is going to be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And this is just not, this is not what we find. Mm-hmm. Um, I think change, it, it's, it's needed in a lot of ways, of course, but it's not going to come from this like, well, let's just burn it all down. Like, no, mm-hmm. there, is, there is stuff worth saving here. This is, there is like beauty and beauty is, I think, I mean, Abraham Maslow, I think got it wrong. Beauty and connection and relationship need to be at the bottom of that uh, needs pyramid, just as much as food and water and shelter are. All right. All right. All right. Megan. Yes. All right. <laughs> there was a long pause, or the connection broke at that particular moment. Yeah, so. I, <laughs> I think it might have been my something. phone. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't hear it, and I'm sure it was great too. Probably extremely profound. <laughs> well, let me ask this question. <laughs> let me ask this question. Do you want bold as laden with snow to? What's the audience? Who are you trying to reach? Is it? Do you have a target audience, or is it primarily hmm. a broad range of readers? So I think it's for people who have struggled with the, uh, the you know, the, the, the facts and the stories of climate change. Um, there's, yes. 
there's this, uh, I've, I have some friends who really have wrestled with what they call climate grief and just mm-hmm. watching, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of destruction that human beings are doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of good too, which is actually what, what I tried to write about that um, not to, not to paper over some of the things that humans really do need to change in relationship with the world, but that um, we're actually also really, we're doing a lot of good. We're bringing back species that were on the brink of extinction. We're greening uh, lands that had previously been uh, considered desertified and, and dead. We are uh, restoring riverbeds that had previously, you know, just totally died out. We are doing amazing things. So even as, mm-hmm. as the dominant narrative seems to be, you know, humans are, are destroying the planet. I've even heard people talk about humans as a cancer on the planet. Um, mm. I, I disagree. I think humans are amazing. And I think we have been tasked with healing the earth for a reason. And mm-hmm. there are many ways in which we're doing that. So if I have to pick a, a, a narrow audience, it's for people who have or currently are experiencing, um, you know, the grief about what they are hearing about climate change and the, maybe the destruction they are witnessing. Mm-hmm. And, and for a broader audience, maybe people who who say they've struggled with poetry, they don't they don't understand, they feel that it's not for them, and I I, I kind of want to I, I want to say like okay I accept that challenge and I mm. invite you to to experience what I hope because I'm I wrote some of these poems with those people in mind that very nice um, I I don't know that poetry is for everyone but I would mm-hmm. love it if you would give it another chance. Wow. So if you were to give your readers of this particular book advice before they purchased the book, what would it be? I would say that um, if you're someone who wants to find beauty in what may be scary or sad or Mm -hmm. difficult, Mm -hmm. like the climate change story, um, then I invite you to to read Boat is a Fling with Snow because it's sort of my journey out of that, like Mm -hmm. climate despair Mm -hmm. into, hey, what if we focus on why the world is worth saving and why all the people in it are too. You know, I know some of my questions may seem repetitive, but they're not repetitive to me because (laughs) I just want to know what you know about your book. I love it. I love it. That's important. That's important. I want to know what you know. It totally is. I want to know why you wrote it. I love it. So what do you think you learned about yourself writing this book? Hmm. One thing I learned is that I actually can be positive. Mm-hmm. That, uh, when, when I was in, in high school, some uh, people nicknamed me mm-hmm. negativity. And that was really terrible. It was hurtful. Yes. But it hurt because it was true. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't. I I don't want to be that person. Like, I don't need to be all Pollyanna and, like, fake positive. That's not me yes. either. But mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't – I, personally, I don't think it helps to point out the negative over and over and over and over and over again. And I was someone who did that. 
Okay. So okay. I learned in writing this that mm-hmm. I actually can write in a way about beauty that is genuine and it's right. not cliche or borrowed from someone who actually believes beauty is a thing, but I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, I, it just wasn't in my self-conception, positive person. Right. And this writing has changed that. All right. You reached my favorite part of the show. I viewed it as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you, Megan, to share two or three of your works back to back, no interruptions from me. Megan, you're on the stage. Okay. Okay. Uh, I am going to share. Let's see, what order should I do this in? Um, okay. I got it. So this one is called If I Were Time. If I Were Time, oh, there we go, okay. If I Were Time, people would marvel at how much of me had passed without their noticing, how both long and scarce I am. How only I have the balm for some wounds. Only I can change things like minds or hearts, but I myself don't change. Maybe this is why some seek ways to stop or even kill me. You'd think I was the perfect lover, the way some talk about me. They can never have enough. But I'm searching for that one who can enjoy me just as I am. Mm. Empty inert, needing help knowing what I'm made of. This next one is called Mystery Confirmed. By the end of the year my grandmother was born, there were two theories about very small things, and both were right. The previous year, there had been none. The thought experiments turned into very small, very precise machines. Think it, it becomes. The very act of observing something. Some things are too long to see. Radio waves, the whole truth, the end of the rainbow of history, even if everything is consciousness. If everything is consciousness, then who is thinking bombs bring peace, whiteness is better, trees are paper? Observation is transformation. If seeing something changes it, who should step in front of a mirror? Who should watch a murder? Who can be let into a peaceful meadow? And who needs to turn their gaze away, lest we leave but a quiet spot before we know what's going on. And the final one is another, another one of my favorites mm-hmm. called Remainder. Heaven and earth will pass away. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Matthew 24. 
35-36. The Jewish uprising against the Romans in 70 AD, the final end-time battle, coins were minted. The world remained. A French bishop announced the end of the world in 365. The world remained. Three learned men said, no, the year 500 will be the last because of the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Pope Innocent III, the world will end 666 years after the rise of Islam. After their leader's 1260 prediction failed, the followers of Joachim of Fiore rescheduled the end of the world to, for, to 1290 and then again to 1035. The world remained. 1346 to 1351, the Black Plague, end of the world for many. Some people who were alive around 1439 thought the world would end then. Hand-wringing. Now that people no longer had to remember anything, now that everything could be written down, what will become of everything we love? Yes, people feared books would destroy culture. The world filled with tomes and remained. Now imagine a democracy without a free press. A Puritan minister declared the end three times, starting in 1697. John Wesley said any time between 1758 and 1836. Rural farmer and Baptist preacher William Miller promised the end in 1844. The world remained and everyone was disappointed. The Catholic Apostolic Church, founded 1831, couldn't give an exact date for Jesus' return, just that it would be when the last of its founding members died, which was 1901. 1939 turned out to be a good candidate for the end. The world remained. Jim Jones saw vision of a nuclear holocaust occurring in 1967, which the current administration says you can survive. You can live in remains, they mean. A doctor of natural medicine and founder of a Baha'i sect, Halley's Comet will obliterate Earth in April 1986. The world remained. His friend, a series of disconfirmed prophecies that would lead step by step to the apocalypse. Also, Middle Eastern terrorists would attack New York with nuclear bombs. The world remains. A quatrain by Nostradamus, who survived the plague, says the king of terror will come from the sky in 1999 and seven months. Y2K, 2012. Some think 2016, some 2020. Some think the internet will yet destroy everything. The world remains. The world remains. The world remains. Perhaps the world will start to end the moment people no longer do. Until the last hour, the world will remain. Thank you. What a perfect poem. I think I already know the answer to this question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yeah, you know, I, I do, but it took me quite a long time to get there. Okay, okay. What surprises you most about being a poet? 
Um, What surprises me most? I would say that what surprises me most is is, uh, that when I write, Mm -hmm. I feel God's pleasure. Wow. Say that one more time and a little bit louder. Sure. When I write, Mm -hmm. I feel God's pleasure. Mm. Wow, that's that's really nice. (laughs) I could talk to you forever. Uh, (laughs) And I've got a thousand more questions. A thousand more questions, but it's time to to end this poetic journey. Wow. Yes. What can we find? Thank you. What can we find the book? Bold as if if laden with snow. Where can we find it? Yes, you can find it on Amazon if you just search the title. You can also find it uh, on Bookshop, which supports uh, small and independent bookstores across Mm -hmm. the United States. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can also find it at my website, which is just MeganWildhood.com. And then the the press, Cornerstone Press, uh, which is run by students out of the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. has it in their bookshop. Uh, in the legacy uh, series, and so any of those places are uh, are great. Um, and it's yeah, it came out May sixteenth, so it's, oh, wow. it's available. Hot off the press, yeah, right. You yeah. know, <laughs> writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because staying silent is not an option. Making why do you write? Mm-hmm. Why do you write? Yes. I I write because I would like others to feel seen the way mm. books have made me feel seen. Oh, all right. My very last question, where do you go from here? What's next for you creatively? So I have uh, in I have in draft form two novels, and then I just uh, mapped out a third one today. Um, I am also working on I have I have finished a uh, second full length collection, and I'm working on a third, uh, writing and editing the poems for that, and then I have a list of probably twelve to 13 short stories that I'm revising and then four or five that I need to write. Oh, you know, <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to you. I really have. And I'm sure you're an excellent writing coach too. You're great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. you. Know. I have too. <laughs> you know, I also feature on this show uh, uh, writers of short stories. So if you'd like to come back and share some of your work, you're more than welcome to. More than welcome. Oh my God. I'm serious. I would love that. This has this has been such a pleasure, such a joy. I uh, have just all of your questions have just really sharpened my uh, even my understanding of of my writing, my work thus far. So I just I really appreciate the opportunity to think more deeply about how I can serve my readers and just get um, even more clear on, on my, my mission and what my work really is about. Uh, I, yes. Yeah, I truly appreciate this uh, so much. Thank you so much. Yes, and I wish you nothing but the best. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so no, much. Serious. <laughs> I don't tell that to everybody, but I wish you oh. nothing but success. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I don't want anybody mad at me. I wish you to everybody. But I wish you nothing but the best. I see your poetic star being on the rise. Whatever you attempt to do, I see it sorry. I really do. I mean, you just got that touch. So thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, so thank you. Oh. Thank you <laughs> All right, everyone. so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Megan. Good night. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. All right. Bye. <laughs> Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.